This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Eric Burns discusses his new book, 1920, The Year That Made the Decade Roar. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese previews the annual American Librarians Association Conference. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. May start off with nonfiction. Sure, Let's go take, for it. So we've got two two Christian titles uh, on our list. Uh, the our, our um, top debut is number sixteen, and this is called "Preaching: Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism," and this is by uh, New York Times bestselling author Timothy Keller. And this book is directed towards pastors and and their struggle to talk about their faith in a way that applies to. Uh, Christian gospel in order to change people's lives. The next one is by Joyce Meyer. Uh, This is at number 31, a little further down the list. It's called Let God Fight Your Battles, Being Peaceful in the Storm. And this is based on her uh, best-selling book, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. And this one is for uh, kind of sending out wisdom to help those reading to triumph over any obstacle they face by uh, looking at the gospel. So we've got two, as I say, Christian-themed books. At number 23, we've got Happily, Alley After, and Other True Tales. This is from uh, comedian and actress uh, Allie Wentworth, and uh, she's kind of dissecting modern life and uh, uh, these um, essays, uh, little vignettes, you know, kind of funny comic vignettes, and that's at number 23. Uh, number 35 is the Hungry Girl Diet Cookbook, uh, Healthy Recipes for Mix and Match Meals and Snacks. And this is kind of, this is by Lisa Lillian, who's the uh, author of the bestseller Hungry Girl Diet. And this is the cookbook that, that follows uh, for, uh, as it says, uh, meals and snacks. And that's at number 35. But the one that is a personal favorite of mine is at number 48, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen by Mary Norris. Anyone who's a proofreader, copy editor, editor would appreciate Mary uh, Norris, who's the, who's been uh, New Yorker's copy department for 35 years. Wow. And, um, this, we get very nice review too. We say it's a sure bet that after reading this book, people will think more about how and what they write. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit about how, you know, she explains when to use who versus whom and that versus which. And in ways that's really, I mean, she talks about her own uh, research in, in deciding how this how this uh, gets set into play at the New Yorker and and therefore uh, elsewhere. So anyway, great to see it on the bestseller list. Yeah, absolutely. A book on copy editing. It should be you and I. It should <laughs> right. be you and I. <laughs> well, that's I think right, right. Which of course yeah, yeah, yeah. is the joke. <laughs> right. So what do we have? Fiction on the fiction side, um, we have at number five all the single ladies by Dorothea Benton Frank. This is. Uh, pretty straightforward work of women's fiction. Uh, the, we don't have a review of it yet, but the uh, jacket copy goes on at some length about friendship, wit, poignance, 
sassy characters. Uh, pretty much all those things you would expect from a best-selling beach read type of mm-hmm. a book. And we're certainly getting into beach read season. Uh, this one conveniently even has uh, a life preserver on the cover, though given the title of All the Single Ladies and uh, Beyonce's song by the same name, one might suggest some parallels with that life preserver right. and a wedding ring. Right. So that's at number five. Just a little bit below it, number six is Dead Ice by Laurel K. Hamilton. This is the 23rd book in her venerable urban fantasy series featuring Anita Blake. Uh, mm. And at this point, uh, Hamilton's descended almost into self-parody i suspect this is this is everything that readers have come to expect from the anita blake books namely there's werewolves vampires a lot of hot sex and some action sort of interspersed here and there uh but as as they say this one is for the fans on the other hand given that it is at number six on the hardcover bestseller list there's a lot of those fans Uh, Moving down a little bit, at number 10 is Blueprints by Barbara Delinsky. This is another one for the Beach Read list. Mm -hmm. We're really starting to see these creep up, uh, displacing the thrillers that take the top spots most of the rest of the year. Summertime is the time for women's fiction. Uh, So this particular book focuses on a mother and daughter. Uh, The mother is a carpenter, daughter is an architect, and uh, they host a home renovation series on television but the mother is uh, being nudged out by the network because they think that she's aged beyond the point of appealing to viewers. They want her daughter to take her place. And meanwhile, there's a lot of upheaval going on in their personal lives. Uh, So this is a book about women's identities, particularly how they're shaped by work and literally the experience of being looked at on television or or otherwise. Uh, continuing down the list a little bit, we do have one of those thrillers at number 16, The Fixer by Joseph Finder. Uh, this is a, a, we called it a so-so standalone novel uh, about a celebrity journalist who's fired, dumped by his fiance, uh, and ending up camping out in his uh, father's empty house because his father is in a nursing room following a stroke. And uh, we say that uh, Rick's look into his father's past is touching and human, but readers should be prepared for an overblown plot and a predictable denouement. Wow. Alas. Uh, we've got another fantasy title on here at number 17, The Darkling Child by Terry Brooks. This is the second book in the Defenders of Shannara segment of his legendary Shannara series, which uh, I, like everybody else, grew up pronouncing it Shannara until we were told that we had been doing it wrong all this time but uh these books have been around for decades and decades uh we we say venerable we're not kidding uh and uh (laughs) this one takes the kind of grand epic fantasy scope and brings it down to a more personal Mm -hmm. level really focusing on the events happening in uh the lives of a couple of specific characters and our review says that brooks's fans and those who prefer their fantasy on a smaller scale will appreciate the more personal but still high stakes turn in this famous world. Uh, and then uh, just below that, at 23, is The Invasion of the Tearling by Erica Johansson. Uh, this is another fantasy novel. It's interesting to see so many of these on here this week. Um, this is much more of a, a dark fantasy uh novel involving a parallel world Mm. to earth and uh, it's this distant realm is populated by the descendants of people who fled earth in search of a better life and so the uh, the titular 
queen. Uh, Kelsey Glynn is still trying to figure out what she's doing uh, as you know, running this strange distant land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we say, well, many questions are answered, many more arise, leading to a cliffhanger ending, and readers enticed by a strong female characters who seize control of their own destiny will forgive the story's flaws, such as a slightly vague and ill-defined world and right. um, maybe magic that defers a little too much to the needs of the plot. And uh, that's what we've got on the fiction list. Lots going on there. Lots of people, I think, buying their vacation reading uh, or maybe just something to read over the weekend. Yeah. And well, let's see if it continues next week. We will indeed. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Eric Burns tells us how the year 1920 turned everything upside down. We'll be right back. I'm Kabir Segal, author of Coint, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Eric Burns on the line. His new book is 1920, the year that made the decade roar. Hello, Eric. So glad you could join us. I'm happy to join you, Mark, and uh, you as well, Rose. So tell us, what was it uh, that drew you to the year 1920? Was it uh, through research? Was it uh, happenstance? I, uh, um, how about if I call it happenstance research? Okay. Because uh, I, 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 I read a lot. The 20s have always interested me. And uh, I, I found over the years that the year 1920 itself uh, popped up um, a lot in in my reading, even though I was reading books, and these are essentially the only kinds of books that are written about that time, books about the entire decade. But in 1920, the first terrorist attack uh, ever on American soil took place. 1920 was uh, Carlo Ponzi's year, and his only year. He was broke at the beginning uh, rich in the middle and uh, in jail at the end. It's the only year in which two constitutional amendments were passed. Um, and there is more, uh, I could tell you, too. Dramatic changes in uh, uh, literature, in, in poetry, in uh, the theater. And there were landmarks for all of those in 1920. And I eventually became convinced that it would be a good idea to to narrow my focus, i.e. not write a book about the entire decade, and simply show how, first of all, 1920 led to the rest of the decade, and second, to show how many events in that year uh, were foreshadowings of not only the rest of the century, but part of this century, as I said, the first terrorist attack. Uh, you know how much Ponzi was in the news around the time of Bernie Madoff. So there's an there's an eerie sense to 1920, which I ultimately found irresistible. Do you give all your guests this much time to answer without an interruption? I'm quite impressed. We do, actually. We, do. we, we really like <laughs> it when people talk. So, uh, you know, people are, are here to listen to you, not to us. So tell us a little bit about the beginning of Prohibition. That's one of those constitutional amendments you mentioned. Well, there's a lot that can be said about it. But to me, the most interesting is this. There was never a time 
in this nation's history. Never when a majority of Americans were in favor of denying themselves the pleasures of alcoholic beverages. Never. What's so fascinating about prohibition is the work of a man named Wayne Wheeler and the group he headed, the Anti-Saloon League. There, and I'm not going to go into a lot of details now because what I hope to do is is fascinate your listeners so much that they'll run to the bookstore for details from the book as opposed to the author. But the brilliance of the lobbying campaign uh, behind, uh, well, by the Anti-Saloon League, which led to prohibition, is is probably something that the uh, National Rifle Association could learn from, that the AARP could learn from. Um, a, a wondrous example of the worst thing there is about democracy, which is uh, lobbying leading to minority rule. And that's how we, we, uh, we suffered and died. Uh, a lot of people died from adulterated alcohol during Prohibition. And as well as the violence associated with uh, bootlegging and all the rest of it. It was, it was quite a troubled, turbulent time. There was, there was a little less of that, Rose, than, than um, people think because of the untouchables and, and various other movies and books and television shows. Uh, I, I would guess, and it's, it's an educated guess, that, see, what bootleggers did was uh, <clears throat> started with uh, good alcohol, real, the real stuff, which they got from uh, Canada, sometimes from Europe, sometimes, in the case of rum, from the Caribbean, um, and cut it uh, maybe on a ratio of five to one. Uh, they put uh, flavorings in to dilute it, the, the various ingredients, some of which were poisonous. Uh, industrial alcohol, for mm. instance, um, was supposed to replace the alcoholic kick that the alcohol in the beverage, now diluted, didn't possess. The problem with industrial alcohol is that it kills. Um, so I would guess, as I started out to say, that more people died from what has been called government sanctioned uh, murder than from bullets. Yeah, that's in, that's impressive. That's a, I mean, impressive way of looking at it. And what was the, at the same time, you talk a lot about jazz, and uh, which was having its own time. And how does that connect with the legalization of alcohol? Gosh, Mark, I don't think it does. Okay. <laughs> I, um, as I said, there was a great deal that happened that year, and yeah. uh, as is the case in any year, in any period of time, uh, events don't conform to the uh, wishes or whims of an author. Um, so I see no connection, except, of course, that there were people who went to, to speakeasies, mm -hmm. uh, especially in Harlem, where the Harlem Renaissance was in full flower, uh, who drank really high-quality booze mm -hmm. um, and who listened to jazz singers. Uh, in 1920, after years of, of, of the most dreadful 
popular music. Uh, there was a song that was a big hit with the title um, "Who Who Ate Napoleons with Josephine While Napoleon Was Away." Uh, <laughs> one of the titles of a big hit. Um, a woman who nobody had ever heard of called Mamie Smith recorded "Crazy Blues." Um, it became number one on on the popular music charts, those charts existing all the way back then. It, it, it was a stunning departure and proof that the jazz age had arrived, and it had arrived actually before that uh, in Harlem. So um, the connection that I reach for, Mark, is that people got drunk while they listened to jazz. <laughs> so um, give us a little bit more of a sense of the, the jazz scene coming out of Harlem and you know, clearly poised to take the country by storm. Well, it did take the country by storm in terms of um, art. It unfortunately had virtually no effect whatsoever on race relations. Mm. Um, the the uh, well, there's an analogy. Um, I don't know how good it is, but you know there were an awful lot of uh, white people who loved Motown music. Uh, Elvis Presley used to stand in line before a, a black uh, jazz club in on Beale Street in Memphis to get in and and listen to. Uh, jazz as it was being played then, uh, jazz and and the, the blues. Um, writing changed. Poetry became uh, much more much more personal, uh, much more soul wrenching, and much more committed to the uh, uh, to the issues of the day because of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, the theater changed dramatically. It it started with the Harlem Renaissance, but it was really 1920 when a white man, Eugene O'Neill, won his first Pulitzer Prize that the, the stage really changed. But I think what the Harlem Renaissance did to artists was um, uh, inspire them to believe that they had been held in too long by boundaries which were they were now realizing artificial this combined with the the uh, horrible lingering after effects of the senselessness and the brutality of world war 1 uh, i think these two elements combined to 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 create an artistic explosion i mean just one example is that uh, Small towns had always been thought of, even back to the to the nineteenth century, as the repository of of virtue and all that was good in America. And in 1920, Sinclair Lewis published uh, Main Street. So mm -hmm. the year was uh, the it, it is fair to use the word revolutionary mm. in describing the year in art. And the Harlem Renaissance was as large a part of that revolution as anything else. 
And you had mentioned something earlier on about the first 1920 was the first terrorist attack on U.S. soil. And this was, mm-hmm. I assume, the bombing the uh, on Wall Street in front of the J.P. Morgan building, a bomb yeah. in, a, in a horse cart. And this was f- this was started by the the anarchists, uh, or, or they presume the anarchists, uh, mostly from Patterson. What was going on with the anarchist movement then, and what was the reaction, the general reaction in 1920, the public's reaction to this? Terror, mm. horror, fright. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the Treaty of Versailles might have been signed in 1919. 1920 might have been the first year in which World War One, known then, of course, as the Great War, uh, was completely uh, an issue of the past. But it wasn't an issue of the past uh, in the minds of Americans who who uh, who still and in fact people abroad for that matter but in in the minds of americans there was still the fear that the war might start up again there was no good reason for it to start up again but there was no good reason for it to start in the first place right. historians still disagree on the precise causes of it so when uh the uh bomb exploded in front of the jp morgan bank killing 38 people, which was the greatest toll in a terrorist attack until Timothy McVeigh mm-hmm. uh, in 1995. When that, when that bomb exploded on Wall Street, the first thing that most Americans thought of was not only that uh, uh, the Great War hadn't ended, but even worse, it had moved to American shores. Hmm. And um, how how did people cope with that i mean psychologically but also you know, what what kind of actions were were taken uh, particularly by elected officials trying to figure out how to cope with this well the attorney general the justice department um, the government officials who were trying to cope with this uh, never shared the fear that somehow the great war was um, not over and starting again in America. Uh, Anarchists were suspected immediately. Uh, Anarchists were suspected all the way throughout the investigation of this terrorist attack. As a matter of fact, the previous year, 1919, um, had been kind of a uh, I don't mean to be facetious, but kind of a a, a warm-up drill for terrorists for Mm. this the major attack in 1920 because they sent package bombs to literally dozens of mayors, judges, the government officials of, of all sorts all over the country. And um, somehow, actually two of these uh, uh, package bombs exploded in the house of uh, the attorney general, whose uh, uh, name was uh, A. Mitchell Palmer, uh, in neither case was uh, was anybody hurt, but two bombs got into his house. Mm. Um, there was one death, an anarchist who was rather clumsy got killed by his own bomb, and that helped to identify, obviously, who was behind this series of package bombs. And uh, a maid in someone's house lost her hands while opening a package. But there was never really any doubt among among government officials that uh, this was the work of anarchists because they were very active with uh, underground 
uh, pamphlets, flyers, newspapers. Um, some of them were uh, very active overground, so to speak, in uh, public speaking and uh, strikes, which which actually didn't exist in America in 1900, um, swelled to 3,000 in 1920, and many of the strikes uh, drew anarchists in to uh, fire up the workers, to uh, do what they could to make life difficult for the establishment. Wow, that's fascinating. And at the same time, uh, there was a lot going on on a different political frontier. Planned Parenthood was being founded, uh, and a, a whole other sort of genre of political activism was taking shape. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, 1920 actually was the year, uh, a year in which um, Margaret Sanger, uh, a very controversial figure because she favored uh, birth control and worked for birth control, who later became a controversial figure because of her support of a eugenics movement. Um, she had before uh, 1920 uh, been brought to trial, uh, been sent to jail. She was out of jail by 1920, and that was a that was a very important year behind the scenes because uh, that was the year that Planned Parenthood was in fact planned um that uh, research was done into the best methods that uh, reading materials and and guides and manuals were were uh, ordered in bulk uh and more important most important was the fact that uh, a headquarters office was found for Planned Parenthood. So uh, all of this behind-the-scenes work with Margaret Sanger for a change out of the news, um, ironically, because she was what she was doing was eventually going to be tremendously newsworthy. All of this happened in 1920, and in 1921, uh, Planned Parenthood was ready to open, and because of various legal decisions that had happened before this, uh, Planned Parenthood was, uh, uh, was not harassed into submission, and from its start in 1921, from its official start in 1921, uh, it has continued to the present. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Eric Burns, author of 1920, The Year That Made the Decade Roar. There was a whole lot going on, as we've been discussing. And um, tell us a little bit about wealth and the middle class during this time. There was uh, quite an imbalance of wealth, which is uh, similar to what we're seeing today. There is a certain uh, element, Rose, in the book of revisionist history and uh, there are many things about 1920 that simply had to be revised. Uh, 
the image that probably comes to mind first to most people about 1920 is um, the flapper. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, so easily does that come to mind that I was afraid the uh, I have a chapter in the, in the book, uh, one of the smaller chapters that explains why the flapper was so inappropriate. Uh, it was typical journalistic excess. You know, the, the, the flapper was an extreme, it was an aberration. Therefore, the media, even back then, uh, um, made her uh, a figure all out of proportion to her real importance. Um, and so I was afraid that the artist, the person who who did the art for the dust jacket, would be um, a bit annoyed because I had taken away uh, what he would probably like to do for the dust jacket, i.e. he couldn't use a flapper. Right. Turns out he was okay with that and had a different <laughs> idea anyhow. Um, 1920 was still the era of the robber barons. Carnegie might have been in his benevolent phase then, but there were still Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, uh, 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 Henry Clay Frick, who was uh, uh, who was Carnegie's uh, successor in uh, industrial tyranny, uh, descendants of the uh, of the Vanderbilts. Uh, the the common working person in America, which is to say the common person in America, uh, worked 12 hours a day. Uh, the man in a steel mill for uh, maybe a few dollars a week. Um, many men in coal mines, uh, women who, who did uh, piecework, uh, sewing, uh, boys, young boys who would get up when it was still dark to deliver ice for people's ice boxes, uh, big blocks that weighed almost as much as they did. This, this was America in 1920, much more so than Scott and Zelda running through the uh, fountain Mm. drunk, as they often were, the fountain in front of the Plaza Hotel. And it was important to me um, in in writing about the year uh, to make it clear that although the, the gaudier, uh, more fashionable and memorable events uh, which we associate with 1920 still happened, uh, they were not representative of what life was like for most Americans. In fact, this can't be proven, but it's a fair guess to say that with income taxes back then being as low as they were, uh, and the percentage varied uh, wildly, I, I, I believe that the, the gulf between the haves and have-nots was greater mm. in 1920 mm. even than it is today. And I have to say, just switching over, you're no stranger to themes of tobacco and alcohol. You talk about prohibition (laughs) in this book. I mean, two of your previous books dealt with these subjects, Spirits of America and uh, The Smoke of the Gods. And I'm going to ask you, what what draws you to these, uh, uh, to such subjects? That's a good question, and, and, and it can be answered on two levels. One of them is that in my reading of history over the years, um, I 
came across, just as I came across um, a lot of instances of significant events in 1920, uh, I came across a lot of uh, references to alcohol and tobacco, which struck me as fascinating. Both of them uh, were originally used for religious purposes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both of them were later used for medicinal purposes. in in my book, The Spirits of America, A Social History of Alcohol, there's a, a great deal about the founding fathers uh, and alcohol, uh, suggesting that they were probably uh, the most inebriated generation of Americans we've ever had. Now, it's obviously they stayed sober enough to be, with apologies to Tom Brokaw, the true greatest generation. So, you know, perhaps, and nobody knows this, uh, perhaps the alcohol of the time was less potent than it is today. But um, I I, I just found all of these facts interesting. And that's the super, I don't want to say superficial, that's the surface answer to the question. Mm -hmm. Um, But my wife once just casually pointed out that, uh, of course, I knew this, my father, who had recently uh, died, had been uh, an abusive alcoholic all of my life, and at his peak had smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. Mm. Um, That would seem to have been, at least subconsciously, the reason for my interest. Uh, The only thing that makes me balk at that explanation is that um, the books are history books. Uh, There's no scolding, there's no ranting, there's no raving. I didn't write the books to get even with my father. They are books without a point of view, uh, which is what I believe history should be. The events themselves should provide the point of view. I mean, if you write a book about tobacco, as I did, uh, and write it objectively, it is, in being objective, negative because the truth of tobacco is very negative. The truth of alcohol uh, in moderation, um, as you know, uh, medical science believes it does some good. So um, I don't know whether I uh, acted consciously or subconsciously, but um, I would have written the book 1920, uh, the year that made the decade roar, whether prohibition had been a part of it or not. There was I mean, it's it's a fascinating part of the year, but there was enough other material that was fascinating so that I didn't, uh, uh, I wasn't finally swayed by the fact that uh, uh, the 18th Amendment prohibition was now in effect. Well, if you'll indulge me in another uh, possible theme in your books, uh, you'd mentioned the uh, founding fathers in your book, Spirits of America, as uh, being uh, uh, perhaps the most drunk uh, uh, or, or the most likely to imbibe than the, in history. Yes. But uh, your other book, one of your most notable books, was infamous uh, Scribblers, uh, The Founding Fathers and the Rowdy Beginnings of American Journalism. And you yourself got your career started as a broadcast journalist. And um, was that the inspiration or was this a continuation? And another part of that question is what, what can we see in today's, if anything, journalism that the Founding Fathers would recognize? I know that's a long. That's a couple of questions for you, right there. <laughs> um, I like the last one. What can we see in today's journalism that the founding fathers would uh, uh, would recognize? Um, 
I, uh, I, I don't know that they would recognize the sensationalism. Their journalism wasn't sensational. The founding fathers used uh, journalism as a means of attacking uh, political opponents with whom they were, on a personal level, very friendly. Uh, Jefferson, for instance, uh, committed what would today be uh, a, a crime uh, while serving as Washington's Secretary of State. He funded, out of government money, he funded an anti-administration newspaper, and he personally fed information to the uh, uh, fellow who published the newspaper, and he lied to Washington when Washington really upset at this newspaper. In fact, he called these journalists infamous scribblers, thereby giving me a title for the book. Uh, Washington was so upset that he called Jefferson in and said, listen, you, you, he didn't put it in these terms, but in effect, he said, you know, a lot of these liberals, uh, uh, you know, actually they were by the terms of the day, Republicans, Jefferson was a Republican, Washington uh, and Adams who succeeded him were Federalists. Those were the, the two opposing parties. But Washington said to Jefferson, you, you, you know a lot of these people. They're, they're your friends. Can you tell them to, 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 to stop, to let up this stuff they're publishing is, is doing harm to a nascent country? trying to get on his feet, and much of it is untrue. And Jefferson looked him in the eye and said, I don't know anybody who was affiliated with these papers. Hmm. As I said, Jefferson was taking government funds hmm. to support one of the papers. Wow. So that's, uh, I, you know, I was, I was going to think that the tabloid journalism of the day was uh, going to look very familiar to them, but it turns out they were doing us one better. Or one considerably worse. Yes, indeed. That's very impressive. Um, how do you go about researching for your books and finding out anecdotes like this confrontation between Jefferson and Washington? Well, I read a lot. Um, I have a researcher who um, has access um, not who, who doesn't Google, but who who has much more sophisticated means of uh, gathering information. And in the case of infamous scribblers, uh, I went to direct sources. Uh, I went to the uh, personal papers of uh, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, all of which are collected and indexed. Um, but most of all, um, I went to Harvard, which uh, has on microfilm virtually every edition. There are some omissions, but virtually every edition of every newspaper ever published in America, the first one was published in 1690. Okay, it lasted one edition, was found to be <laughs> improper by the authorities, and that was it for the 17th century uh, as far as journalism is concerned in America. But uh, I made um, countless trips to Harvard to uh, to read the newspapers, and, and uh, I simply uh, chose the significant events of the colonial era, uh, the Stamp Act um, being one of the primary ones, and uh, read all the papers about or, you know, around that time to see 
how the lead up to the Stamp Act was being covered and certainly to see uh, what the aftermath was being covered. So um, that, although it was a lengthy book to research, was easy to research thanks to uh, Harvard's wonderful collection. Wow. Well, that sounds really intense. Are you taking a break now or are you jumping right into the research for the next book? Um, actually, I'm taking a break. I'm not starting research for the next book, uh, which will be done. Well, the next book is finished uh, wow. and will be published next year. The book after that, um, my break is, let's see, this is Thursday, is a <laughs> whopping five days. And uh, five days from now, I go to examine uh, the papers of Eleanor Roosevelt, but I'm not going to tell you why, because it's um, um, an interesting angle I think I've, I've come across, and it's not going to be a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, but the papers that I want uh, to look at uh, to see whether my notion can be supported um, are at Hyde Park. Can you give us a little? So that's where I'll be uh, to oh, see if either one of you is free. And, uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful place to tour. <laughs> Can you give us a little uh, idea of what your book is going to be about, the one coming out next year? Yes, it's called The Golden Lad, The Haunting Relationship Between Theodore and Quentin Roosevelt. And um, all I'd like to say about it is that Theodore Roosevelt is easily the most bellicose man uh, ever to sit in the White House. For him, war was a form of exercise for a nation. Um, as far as Quentin Roosevelt is concerned, he was Theodore's youngest and favorite son, and he was killed in a war, a war that his father was too old to fight in, but uh, uh, with great vigor supported. And uh, there is a a story there about that, uh, to quote again from the subtitle, Haunting Relationship. Wow. Well, we look forward to that. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about 1920 today. I'm really happy that both of you wanted to give me the time. And um uh, why don't you do it again when the golden light comes out? This was very enjoyable. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Okay. We've been talking with Eric Burns, and you can find his book, 1920, The Year That Made the Decade Roar, in stores right now. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about getting ready for ALA, so stay tuned. I am Mario Marazziti, author of 13 Ways of Looking at the Death Penalty, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about the upcoming ALA conference. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Rose. Hello, Mark. Hello. It's so nice to have your sonorous tones on the radio with us again. <laughs> I'm so. always happy to be back with you guys. So ALA is uh, a week away. It's in San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about what you expect. 
I expect probably the most, the biggest, most successful ALA conference since the last time I was in San Francisco, which was in 2000, I think. Uh, as you can imagine, it's always a great city to visit. And so sure. ALA attendance always soars when it's in San Francisco. And this year, I expected to soar once again. And especially interesting is that the conference will take place uh, during Pride mm -hmm. weekend. So the... Uh, right. San Francisco Pride Parade will actually cut right between my hotel and the conference center on Sunday. <laughs> well, good oh, wow. good luck getting through that. I've, I've seen that parade. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's quite a shindig. Don't, don't tell my bosses. I think I just might take a couple hours off and, and spend a little time watching the parade that sure, day. Sure, absolutely. Drape yourself in rainbows. And have, but it should be especially time. interesting this year, right? Because we've got the referendum in Ireland and we have the Supreme Court set to right. issue another ruling any day now on another same-sex marriage issue. So yep. I'm expecting quite a party. Sounds, sounds like a plan. We were just talking with Anise Gross, who wrote uh, a lot of our uh, uh, Bay Area supplement about the literary culture that's been changing and growing in the Bay Area. How does that interact with ALA as a conference? Is it sort of this island in the sea of literary things? Yeah. You know, what's really interesting about San Francisco public libraries especially, I think they're going to play a pretty prominent role this year in ALA. And usually this, whatever city ALA is in, the libraries there step up and they offer tours of the library mm -hmm. or the librarians play a, an organizing role in some capacity during right. the conference. But what's really interesting about San Francisco is that it's right in the backyard of Silicon Valley. And you have all of this digital change that is coming to libraries, and that the epicenter of that is right there in San Francisco with companies like Google, et cetera. And you can really see how digital is transforming uh, libraries everywhere, but especially in San Francisco, where you have all of these you know tech companies, people who really have different expectations of their public library. And uh, I think what you're going to see in ALA because of that is a real solid, not only a focus on technology and digital, but also of sort of the Silicon Valley mindset of let's blow this up. You know, right. let's, let's take this model and take it apart and just do something better. Let's innovate on it. And can you give us an idea, some examples of, of to how technology is changing in libraries or how they're embracing it and using it to their best? Yeah, I think probably the most prominent example is with book discovery. That has almost entirely moved online. Like the library catalog used to be a very poor source of discovery. Not a lot of people could find their way to navigating through the, the library's catalog. But now there are so many ways on the web to find a book. And libraries are really working to sort of upgrade their catalogs and change their catalogs and make metadata more easily digested for their systems and more searchable for their users. So um, I think the way we do book discovery on the web is probably a prime example of that. And a lot of it's very technical and very much behind the scenes. But I think users are going to really start seeing some, some major differences in the way they find books at their public library uh, within almost immediately. Yeah. Wow. So um, when you say discoverability, I've, I also start to think of things like recommendation engines. I mean, I definitely take advantage of being able to take a book that someone's recommended to me, go to the Brooklyn Public Library website, put a hold on it, you know, go to my corner library in a week to pick it up, like seamless. But um, what I don't have is that little scroll at the bottom that says, if you like this book, you might also like this and this and this. At the same time, librarians um, really love having that job as a way of interacting with the people who come and visit the library. So how's that playing out? I think this is going to be a central issue for libraries in the coming decade, and one that I expect we're going to hear a lot about this year in San Francisco, too. And the reason why, I mean, when you think about who recommends books, you know, your local librarian, they have what's called reader's advisory in the library. If you go into a library and say, I really like this book, 
a librarian will come up to you and they will do a very formal interview and you'll walk out of there with a handful of books that are going to be right in the sweet spot of that. They're terrific at that. But that hasn't translated online. And the reason that hasn't translated online is basically because of privacy. Mm -hmm. Um, When you sign up with Amazon, when you, uh, you know, buy books from a retailer or anything, you give them your data. They know who you are. They read your email (laughs) in most cases. Libraries don't do that. They don't use the data in their records to come up with better book recommendations for you. And I think a key challenge for libraries going forward is to explain to users uh, how they can, if with their permission, if the library can use their data, they can offer them all these great services and book recommendation, right. I think, is at the top of that list. Interesting. And there's a lot of stuff happening in copyright right now also. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I know it's your area of expertise and also how that's playing with the librarian. Oh, are you sure you want to start that conversation with me? <laughs> well, you know, we've got about 10 minutes left in this segment, so uh, that should let us at least cover the basics. Well, this month, there was a draft bill that was released in Congress that proposes to move the Copyright Office out of the Library of Congress. The, the U.S. Copyright Office generally, er, since its inception, has been under the purview of the Library of Congress. Uh, and this new bill would establish it as an independent federal agency. Mm. Uh, the publishing community has rallied behind this. They think it, they say it's necessary. It's essential. It's a critical first step in modernizing the copyright office. But this week, the American Library Association came out and through, you know, came against, came out against it, not strongly against it, but said that, you know, it's just not the right time to consider this. Uh, and the net organizations too, the Googles and the Netflix of the world are also opposing this. And nobody disagrees that the copyright office needs a modernization. It still operates pretty much in the typewriter age. You still have to fill out paper forms to register for a copyright. It's not easy to search the database. You know, copyright exists largely online, right? It's You're running into copyright questions all the time when you're on Facebook every day. You're probably mm-hmm. running into copyright questions. And the Copyright Office, because of funding constraints, has not been able to keep up with that change. But there's nothing to suggest, this is what the library community especially says, nothing to suggest that establishing the Copyright Office as an independent agency is going to remedy the funding problems. And that you can fund the Copyright Office within the the, the Library of Congress. It doesn't need to be an independent agency. So I have two thoughts about this. The first is, personally, not speaking for my esteemed employer here, but if we do establish the Copyright Office as an independent agency, what are the what are going to be the limits on that? Are we going to because enforcement is really a big part of copyright, right? The FBI right now is who cracks down on piracy, but someday are we going to see copyright enforcement as part of it? Are we going to have ATF like agents or, you know, what a fascinating idea? Copyright cops, yeah. You know, is it right. going to sprawl? Are we going to have the war on drugs for intellectual property run out of the copyright office of the U.S.? You know what happens when you establish an independent federal agency? They tend to sprawl. These programs tend to get big. And the other thing is, I just finished reading Maria Polante's, uh, who's the Register of Copyrights. She gave testimony in April before Congress about the needs of the Copyright Office. And she did note that the Copyright Office is under strain, that it's underfunded, that it needs a modernization. But almost every issue that she spoke about in her testimony was a library issue, closely related to a library issue. So if we move the Copyright Office out of the Library of Congress to make it better at fighting piracy, are we going to lose all of the other things that the Copyright Office does for the public? Uh, they're mostly librarian-related functions, whether it's uh, you know searches or database mm-hmm. functions. You know, These are the things that really concern me. It, it, there's one good reason to move the Copyright Office, and that's to make it more effective at fighting piracy. 
everything else to mm-hmm. me augurs for keeping it within the purview of the Library of Congress with more money. And what is the history as to why it was uh, uh, founded in the Library of Congress, as part of the Library of Congress? The Copyright Office's traditional role is to make records, basically, right. and that's still its primary role. Uh, it just hasn't really adapted very well to making those records for the digital right. age. Um, but now, of course, there's, you know, there's an entire industry that's been built, whether it's music, uh, entertainment, books, that's been built on top of Congress. Right. Uh, so now the Copyright Office is not just in charge of keeping records for this stuff. It's also in charge of sort of nurturing this very important sector of our economy. Wow, I'm just I'm back at the part where you basically plotted out a science fiction novel. I was just well, going to say, Rose, well, I saw, well, I saw the talking, gears you saw, you, you saw you saw my uh, my eyes light up. Um, so I'm I'm just fascinated by this idea of the copyright cops. Uh, it it does sound a little bit dystopian. I mean, what if we decide one day that uh, as a nation we're less interested in combating piracy and more interested in you know, encouraging remixes and, and basically moving away from this iron grip on intellectual property? Which I think we are headed in that direction. We're a sharing economy. We're, right now, we're like, it's creative. Our creative culture is based on sharing. Right now, mm. I think some of the companies that were established in the last century of copyright are fighting against that. But there's no denying that that's where we're going as a people, um, as a culture. So I, 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 you know, my concern, it does sound a little dystopian, doesn't it? Have, like, yeah. You think of, yeah. you know, SWAT teams for the right. copyright office busting <laughs> right. in and seizing servers. <laughs> but I, I, what really, it's not that far out of the realm of possibility. Right. It could probably, we don't know that this is going to happen, but it's not, it's not impossible. And I think one of the things with copyright is it's not just another economic sector uh, it's free speech is tied in here, or privacy. There are so many issues that are tied in with intellectual property that uh, I think demand that this be done very carefully. Yeah, absolutely. So um, tell us a little bit about some other things that are going to be under discussion at ALA, aside from these large-scale topics. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't plug our latest issue of Publishers Weekly last week. I think it was the June 15th issue of Publishers mm-hmm. Weekly. We have eight. We have a solid package of features that's running down some key library issues and uh, a lot of things that are going to be very prominent topics of discussion at ALA. Two of the things that really stand out to me in that package, and I think they're all terrific pieces, of course, <laughs> um, is uh, there Scott Sherman is an author who wrote a book called Patience and Fortitude, and it is about uh, the New York mm-hmm. Public Library's recent failed bid to uh, gut the stacks from the uh, main library at 42nd Mm. Street and to undergo this massive renovation, which involved selling off three valuable pieces of property here. He's going to be speaking at ALA on a couple of panels. Uh, He's also going to be, there's a book party for him there, hosted by uh, his friends at The Nation magazine, Victor Naboski's house, I believe. Uh, So he's going to be a very prominent speaker around there. And I think his book raises some very key questions about how libraries move forward in the digital age while still respecting some of their key roles. Um, But the key takeaway from his book is that this plan at NYPL was really done in secret by trustees. And these trustees are on the board of the New York Public Library. They're bankers and real estate signs. And it really should be no surprise that they hatched a secret plan to sell real estate because (laughs) this is what what they they do. do. That's what they do. So his his point is that uh, we can't let Wall Streeters and people like this make decisions for the public in these capacities. There needs to be more transparency. So I'll be very interested to see how that message resonates at ALA. And that that book was being pushed quite hard at BEA, too. I heard a lot of people talking about it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's a 
it seems like a quiet little book, but he's written it in a very sort of riveting way. He really mm-hmm. moves very quickly through the narrative. It's a, it's a fast read. You can plow through it in a night if you're so inclined. And fun little fact, too, that you know, the author, Scott Sherman, and I were uh, assistant editors together at Oxford University Press. We uh-huh. s- stared across the desk at each other for a better part of a year there. So that's where we be- that, that was, was back great. in the 90s. We became friends there. Nice. So what do you expect, Ed? Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, ALA is going to look like, uh, the attendance who's coming um just a little description yeah well i'm expecting over twenty thousand this year and that right. includes librarians publishers uh and vendors and various service providers to the library community the main program has some terrific speakers lots of authors authors really are the lifeblood of ala yeah uh, we you know we hear a lot about how publishers and libraries are experiencing a little tension shall we say in the digital mm-hmm. age over the shift mm-hmm. to ebooks but you can really see how closely allied the two are when you go to an ALA conference because it's amazing how many authors go. It's amazing how hard publishers push their books there. Mm-hmm. They, they value librarians, librarians there. And it's amazing to me to see how a librarian, a small little librarian, can turn into a water buffalo on the show floor <laughs> standing with bags of books over their shoulders waiting for an hour online to get a, a, a signed copy right. from somebody. It's incredible the fortitude they have. But in, on the main program, I'm especially looking forward to um, Roberta Kaplan, who was the attorney who defeated the Defense of Marriage Act before mm-hmm. the Supreme Court. She's going to give the opening keynote at ALA, and I think that's going to be obviously especially timely. Right. Uh, and yeah. also Gloria Steinem, who's going to be the speaker on Saturday morning, and uh, she has a new memoir coming out that's supposed she to does. be very that's personal. Right. I haven't seen our review of yet of yet is it out uh not we uh i don't even know if we have the galleys in yet but uh but yeah it's on it's on the radar so yeah yeah, yeah. It's, i'm really looking yeah. forward to that book yeah. very much um so i've been kind of a fan of hers for right. a long time i'll be very interested to hear what she has to say Great. And uh, I'm I'm just curious because uh, this book has been creating a lot of buzz in my circles over on the romance and erotica side. E.L. James just released her new Fifty Shades of Grey, told from the perspective of Christian Grey mm-hmm. novel. Um, and I you know, obviously everybody's clamoring to get their hands on. I think they announced a first print run of something like 1.25 million copies. Yeah, and I think they've actually upped it since then. Wow. So yeah. how many of those copies are going to libraries? How are libraries handling what basically was kicked off by Fifty Shades, the the, the part where erotica comes out of the shadows and into the mainstream? I think you're going to see a significant library uptake. I don't know that E.L. James is actually going to make an appearance at ALA. That would be a really great thing if she did. Yeah. But this was a heavily circulated book, obviously, from mm-hmm. libraries. And one of the key questions I think that I'm thinking with this is that Random House sells ebooks um, on a perpetual access model. They're significantly more expensive to buy ebooks than regular books at libraries. My question is for libraries that I'll be looking into is how many of those digital, how many of the ebook editions are they going to be able to buy? And how right. does buying a perpetual access ebook edition of this book stop them from buying multiple copies of the print that would circulate. Right. Um, I think that that's going to put a little pressure on Random House's perpetual access model. They usually sell uh, their ebooks for about three times the retail price, uh, three to four times the retail price. And that really, wow. you know, librarians have complained that, that stops them from buying more print editions. And right. It's a very good point. But I'm, I, what a fascinating 
development this is right we have yeah from the pers- absolutely it's yeah. like it's like wicked right that's like the wizard of oz told from <laughs> right, only it's right. a sadistic billionaire right. instead of wicked went to the west here yeah. right not all that much difference really. <laughs> yeah. except that nobody drops a house on him just uh, in my opinion a little unfortunate but that's <laughs> maybe in book, maybe in book three <laughs> maybe in book two anyway anyway thank you very much for coming by to give us this uh, preview of ala we really appreciate it my pleasure and if any of our listeners are in san francisco uh find me there we Publishers Weekly has a booth. We'll be quite prominent there, and you know, I'd love to chat. Great. All right, great. Thanks so much, Andrew. Yeah, Thank thanks, Andrew. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Sarah Fort, author of Sprouted Kitchen, Bowl and Spoon, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another fabulous author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 